Ladies and gentlemen, aloha and welcome to our Undoing Radio. I am your host, Jeremy Vaney, and we are continuing on our merry journey to discover what the word sacred means. Uh, I am here with Max Genslin. Max, hello, how are you? Hi, Jeremy. Thank Beautiful you. to hear your voice. Yes, you as well. Thank you uh, for coming on. You are the coordinator for the Esalen Center for Theory and Research. Um, but I also, in having spoken with you personally, know that you, your sort of um, spiritual readings, at least, and reach seem to go beyond uh, the Esalen Institute. Um, but I know you've also, you must have seen quite a, quite a lot go through there. Uh, so I thought maybe you're the perfect person to ask what sacred means. Um, I've, I'm doing this with a bunch of people to get different takes. Uh, so let me just start at the beginning with you. Prior to the Esalen Institute, what was your interest in spirituality? Um, well, I play drums and I had an experience, a teacher of mine, I was probably about 15 years old played a video for me of it was just a very short clip in a history of jazz video of the John Coltrane quartet. And I'd never heard any music like that before. And I was really fascinated by what the drummer was doing. And so it started off as being just a kind of an interest in the physicality of drums and, and what this music was. And that led me to an interest in improvisation. And I, came to believe that musicians, um, when they were improvising, were uh, tapping into some part of them that was smarter than they were or, or something. Or I really came to think perhaps they were tapping into something that was altogether other than they were. There was some channeling going on. And, and that really is what led to my spiritual interest and into um, just opening to ways of you know, language, language doesn't quite do it, but ways of opening to knowing or, or knowledge or information other than just dialogical and logical thinking and discourse. So um, that was kind of it, just opening to um, the world at large. And that led me to interest in meditation and um, different philosophies of um, accessing whatever there is to access beyond um, our sort of typical ways of going through the world. That makes sense. So that was kind of the start of it. And yeah. Uh, um, so let me ask so, you this when, when you're, yeah. you know, working for the uh, Esalen center, I'm sure you see a lot of uh, workshops and other sorts of programs that have the word sacred attached to them as sort of an advertisement. Would that be fair to say? Yes. And, um, I see that. Yes. Okay. So, and you've, you've gone to, I'm sure you've gone to a number of them and I want to ask you which is which, but I'm just curious, um, if they're not all striking that chord of whatever sacred means to you, can you tell me what the difference is? Like if, if program A says sacred, blah, 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 and program B says sacred, blah, blah, blah. Why does one strike you as sacred and the other is kind of like, eh, this isn't it. Um, that's an interesting question. For me, um, I think that the dichotomy between what is sacred and what is not sacred is a little dicey. Um, so f for me, the word sacred as an advertisement 
or a program is, is a little bit neither here nor there. I mean, it, it speaks to a certain kind of um, orientation in which they, the, there's probably some sense of divinity or something um, larger than or uh, deeper than um, typical discourse. But yeah, I don't know. I, to be honest with you, I can't say I, I work for Esalen and I meet a lot of people like psychics and mediums and mystics and people that have had near death experiences and precognition. And I can't actually answer your question in terms of I've been to a thousand different workshops that all co- claim to be sacred and what are the differences um, between them. But I will say this about uh, a founding principle of the Esalen Institute, which I would guess not a lot of people necessarily know that the basic theory and philosophy that led to the birth of the Esalen Institute is ironically, um, you know, unknown to, as I understand it, to quite a few of the people there, or, you know, it's certainly the part of the philosophy of the Esalen Institute is that no one captures the flag and that they were open to a lot of different um, interpretations of what is sacred or what is integral or what is um, worthwhile or worth exploring. So, um, it wasn't as if Michael Murphy and Dick Price said, this is how we have to think. But there was, for at least from Michael Murphy's side, an idea that the divine is both imminent and transcendent. So what that means is that you know, there's a lot of theistic or religious models like the flesh has fallen we ate the forbidden fruit and we became separated from god and then there's some kind of injunction for example you accept jesus christ as your lord and savior and then in the afterlife you can be reconnected with god or there might be a model like manifestation itself is an illusion and it's a turning wheel of samsara and we need to wake up from this illusion and um, become one with our true selves and i'm being you know i'm sure i sound flippant and and um, overly simplistic with those. There's a lot of nuance and variation in those, but, but just to speak broadly, there is this, just this separation or this dichotomy between the sacred and the profane or between manifestation and divinity or God. And in, uh, the worldview that Michael Murphy subscribed to, the divine was both imminent and transcendent. So the divine was involved in the moment of the Big Bang. Everything is sacred. Every carrot, every cucumber has divinity in it. And we are arising. The flesh itself is giving, um, is waking up. The manifestation is giving rise to more and more conscious iterations of itself. Evolution is the, um, temporalization of the great chain of being is a quote by Arthur Lovejoy. Over time, we are waking up. We are becoming, we are moving towards um, divinity. Um, so there is a transcendent telos of evolution that we're moving towards, and it is always already present, if that makes sense. So, and that really speaks to me. Like, I really, um, actually, when I was probably around 10 years old, my parents converted from Catholicism, which we were not very practicing, and they became Quakers. And um, one of the ideas of Quakerism is that there is that of God in every person, and that Quakers sit in silence and listen for the light within, and then there's no hierarchy. Anyone can stand and speak if they feel 
so moved. And so I think maybe that influenced me on some level, this idea of divinity within. And so for me, the difference between sacred and not sacred could just be in the way I hold this moment. Like, where am I coming from within myself? And and to even say there's a difference between sacred and non-sacred is a little bit of um, a false dichotomy. But maybe I can notice the sacred moment of here I am, you know, connecting with Jeremy and I can be a consciousness speaking to another consciousness. And maybe there's some connection or maybe there's there's a way to hold the sacred and maybe I can open myself to not just yammering here like I'm yammering and, and <laughs> no you're words, you're actually you know? not yammering <laughs> but but to just be open and present to something else maybe there's something larger like a consciousness that you and I are both part of that we can point to in our discussion and and open to that and so um to me the words actually point to I'll use the word experience or opening or presence of of the sacred um, and, and that it's really opening to something that's always present and that we can, you know, we can eat an orange from a place of presencing ourselves to what is sacred in the orange, or we can, you know, go about our day and like be looking at our cell phone and shoving food in our mouth. So, um, <laughs> can't we do both? Uh, and we can do both. Absolutely. Well, here's a question for you. So it's kind of tricky, I guess, is for me to yeah. even try to say something sacred or not. Right. Well, and then uh, my other question about the sacred is, are there, does it have different characteristics to it? Is it prismatic or are we just using one word to describe a whole bunch of different things? So when people talk about sacred sites or they talk about sacred texts, um, talking about the sacred moment, uh, sacred objects, are these, are, are we, uh, I don't know, are we too addicted to separate nature at that point to understand that, that these are not um, different qualities of sacredness, that they're all describing the same thing. And like, like you were sort of saying, maybe everything's sacred. Um, does that hold mm. true to you? Or do you think that there are, no, there are these different qualities and there is a certain type of discernment that comes with recognizing the sacred in each of them. Yeah. I think it's utterly paradoxical. I think it's both pointing to a multiplicity of the 10,000 kinds of sacred and to the fact that it's probably ultimately all one thing. Um, one of uh, the presence, Michael Murphy, again, one of the, he accidentally walked into a um, lecture when he was at Stanford as an undergrad by a man named Frederick Spiegelberg. And he thought he was going into, I believe, a psychology lecture, but this was a uh, lecture in comparative religions, I believe. And he heard the phrase, Atman is Brahman. And he said for him, he was an altar boy growing up. He said that was the end of the Virgin Mary for him. And that phrase, Atman is Brahman, means that, in my own very imperfect understanding, is that our own deepest subjectivity is one with the universal divine. So... Um, so I could have a subject object relationship with like the pen I'm holding, for example, and I can look at the pen and I know that I am the 
that this pen is the object of my subjectivity. I could also look at my hand and say, and say, well, my hand is part of me, right? But if I were to cut off my hand, the part of me that I would consider me would not be my hand, it would be, you know, my head or whatever it is looking at it. So then I think, okay, where is, where am I? You could think, am I in my head? Am I in my thoughts? Well, I can meditate for a little while. And then I can look at my thoughts. I can sit back and say, hey, wow, I can watch my thoughts go by like clouds in the sky. What is that consciousness that's looking at the thoughts? And then I can turn consciousness on itself and I can notice what's noticing and back up. And the deepest level of subjectivity is one with the universal divine. So one way to put it might be the God that is staring out of my face is the same God I contemplate when I look up into the starry night sky. And so from that standpoint, there's a saying I've heard um, Taoists saying, I'm, I'm not claiming to know anything about Taoism, but anything that can be observed is not the true Tao. So I can say, I am not that, I am not that, I am not that, and back up. Now, that's not a very panentheistic statement, I don't think, that anything that can be observed is not the true Tao, because if the divine is imminent and transcendent, then everything is the divine. So there's like a paradox. And I guess that if we back up just logically, none of this is logical, but if we back up and there's a, there is a consciousness that's staring out of my face and a consciousness that's staring out of your face, and at the deepest level, it's all one consciousness, and then there is all of the 10,000 things arising within this larger field of Brahman, then I think... Um, you know, prismatic is an interesting word. I'm not familiar with using it, but um, there is at a deepest level, I think all one thing, at least I subscribe to that. I, I don't claim to be um, coming from that experience um, on any kind of regular basis. But um, to me, it's a nice model um, from which to hold things. I don't know if that answers your question, um, but yeah. I think... To say that to, we use the word sacred in all sorts of ways. So if we're talking about a sacred object or a sacred text or a sacred moment, then in some sense it's different. And in another sense, it's, hey, are we connecting to the divinity, that one divinity that's in all things? Right. Uh, and then uh, just, I don't know, have you, ha have you ever read a book that you thought was sacred? And not that anyone even told you that it was, but you just sort of picked it up and you're like, whoa, what is this? I have had books open my eyes to the sacred and open my eyes to experiences of the sacred. I've definitely had that experience with music very much. And I've had that experience where I have, it's all have that sense of like listening to music or being in the presence of musicians and feeling like I feel what is um, being transmitted through them. See, that makes more sense to me because that's uh, sort of a live in the moment experience, whereas words on a page are a description of the thing. And so can a description ever be right. sacred? And yet there are some books and maybe it's just how we feel about like opening up an, an old ye old book, you know, that maybe you mm -hmm. remember libraries, you know, maybe you find in a library yeah. that has a certain smell and it's dusty and, you know, a look to it and. Old, yeah. written in old English or something. And maybe all of this just sort of conjures something magical in a, in a person. Um, right. I don't know. Sure. And I've had that experience with poetry. Um, yeah. I, I, 
I have that experience in conversation. Uh, you know, you, um, the experience of just, I remember one time I was walking down the street. This was very odd. And I just saw it, it was in San Francisco and there was a tree growing up through the ground in, in the sidewalk. I mean, it was a little space and there was this tree and I was just like stopped dead in my tracks by this tree. And I had the thought I like, it's not even a thought, but just this feeling like I am this tree, this tree and I are one. And, um, it was just this weird moment. I know I've had other moments like that, but that's that thing that you see when you're reading a sacred book or, you know, reading the words of someone like Sri Aurobindo or Ramakrishna or Krishnamurti or, you know, and, and it just points to something and you kind of just get stoned reading it just from the words, you <laughs> know, and, um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, so what is that? Okay, so well, that gets to something. When you're talking about the the feeling of it, does the feeling have have a location in your body? Is there a physiological component to it? Um, did I say physiological? I think you did. Okay, um, <laughs> I that's an interesting. You know, very often when I go there, like when I induce myself into those states on purpose, I typically start by just feeling my body and noticing sensations and breathing and noticing if there's any contraction, any place where I'm holding any tension, I breathe into that and I relax my body as much as possible. I notice my emotions. I feel, is there an emotional contraction? I relax the emotions. I notice my thoughts. I notice the quality of my, um, intellectual, my mind, my intellectual energy. And as I do this, I, I slowly just start to observe myself and back up into the consciousness that is observing and then try to rest as that consciousness. So I would say I become more and more aware of more of my body. I'm more aware of myself physiologically. I'm more aware of myself emotionally. I'm more aware of what's going on in my head and I'm holding it from a, a more, I will call it, I'll use the word energetic kind of level, then it's paradoxical. I'm both more distanced from myself and more connected. Um, but I might feel any particular way. And I would say I feel more of myself. So I would say it's a, a larger consciousness, a larger presence. Um, but no, I don't necessarily feel it in any specific spot in my body. Okay. And is this different than being in the moment playing the drums? Yeah, it kind of is. You know, actually, um, if I'm in the moment playing the drums, if I'm really in the moment playing the drums, I'm pretty, actually, I'm pretty unaware of my body. I'm mostly listening to the music and just responding. And um, the same thing, actually, like when I'm super deep in meditation, I, I have had the experience of not even being aware of my body or aware of what direction gravity's pulling or just you know just being completely in something else like that that i I, it's you know i can't really put words to it but just being like i felt like whatever me was it was just going off in all directions you know it wasn't localized in in a body so um in a sense i think um for me at least i lose connection sometimes with my body is ironic because i usually start by being more aware of my body. Hmm. And what about, uh, yeah, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. 
Oh, I was just going to say, this is all subjective and, and can be different, different times or whatever. So anyway, what about, what about, uh, you had mentioned, you know, there are certain people who seem to, you know, speakers or something guru-y types who, who maybe give off that, that sacred vibe. Uh, if you've Mm -hmm. met any of these people who you would say have it, whatever that sacred it factor is, um, are they, does it match their personalities or, or do they seem to be, um, almost a dissociative disorder? Um, I think it can go either way. That's a really interesting question. I personally, um, I will just admit have something of a distaste for people who self identify as enlightened, uh, at the risk of offending those that are in that are uh, calling themselves enlightened. Um, I, 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 I am aware of people actually that, for example, people I don't know personally, but um, musicians, for example, that I think are musicians of the highest order and are tapped into something larger and that have personality disorders, it seems like. So I think, um, yeah, I think it can be really different. I I mean, I, I think that you can be more or less evolved in different areas of life. And I think it creates problems. Um, So I often say I want to transcend a healthy ego. So for me, the the up and out model of just like sitting down in Brahman and being quote unquote enlightened and then not working on, for example, whatever my psychological baggage is, is not a model that that appeals to me. Um, So I think that's possible. Ken Wilber has, uh, well, a lot of people have, I think it started with, uh, I don't know, Gardner. I don't know where it started, but in any case, like of like different, um, lines of development. So you can be more or less developed physiologically or psychologically or spiritually. So yeah, I don't, I don't think that one, um, means that you're more evolved than the other. I think they can help each other. I have heard Ken Wilber say that, um, meditation and psychotherapy uh, are synergistic, that they can, um, accelerate each can accelerate the progress of the other. So I certainly think that there's something called anticaluthia, a word I believe I heard from Michael Murphy, the mutual entailment of the virtues. So for example, if you're more physiologically healthy, that, that can have emotional resonances and clearly, you know, having a healthy worldview, you know, these things can certainly help each other, but, but I don't think they're necessarily do. So I think an approach to growth that is really healthy would include some sort of physiological component and a healthy relationships, healthy emotions, um, feeling your feelings, um, healthy worldview, learning, growing, um, having some kind of spiritual practice, meditation or, or contemplation, some sort of contemplative practice. So that's, that's what I subscribe to personally. So I think they can help each other, but by no means doing your work in one domain is not going to do your work in the other domain for it. Right. And uh, so here's a weird couple of questions, I guess. Um, just in thinking about music and the perfume of the sacred that overcomes you, but then you think like, well, isn't everything sacred? Um, or in writing and mm-hmm. it feels like it's not you writing. Um, right. Do you think anything actually comes from people or do you think that we are purely, uh, sort of megaphones for some other mind or well for mind at large, it's our mind, but um, 
does anything actually come from us or do we have to be silent for, you know, the real to come through? Um, I absolutely do not know the answer to that question. I like to hold from a pragmatic standpoint that things come from us only in that I like to, I, I choose to believe in free will and that my life is my responsibility and that I can be more or less responsible. And so therefore I want to give myself agency um, in order to have the discipline to be a productive, moral, um, quote unquote, good person. So for me, kind of pragmatically, um, I adhere to that. But yeah, I think, in fact, when we're doing our best work is when we're getting our, out of the way of ourselves and when we're just opening ourselves to letting something come through us. I think it's probably a both and. Like, So to use the example of a concert pianist, um, I do not play piano. I mean, I play very badly. And so I, if I sat there and opened myself to the divine at a keyboard, I'm not going to play anything that anyone's going to want to actually listen to, even if I'm like completely resting in Brahman or whatever versus, you know, somebody that's spent, you know, 30,000 hours practicing the piano and, and mastering that as an instrument and they're open and they're being a vehicle, then, you know, something truly profound and sacred could come through. So I think that we have to, here's a, here's a quote. Michael Murphy says that, practice is bodybuilding for the disclosure. So we have to practice in order to create ourselves as vehicles that can open to the disclosure of the divine. So I think there's something of a partnership if that's responsive to your question. Yeah. And then I guess the other part of it that, that is weird question part two is, um, you know, if we are, uh, at our best when we're silence or getting out of our own way or what have you, then what is evolution? What is the, the point of free will? Um, right. And what is it for you? It, even if it's both and like, what would be, um, what would be the point of, of all of this learning? Yeah. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, if we, if, <laughs> if we're the witness going, who's learning? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yes. what's the learning about? Yes. Right. You know, I think there's a, there's a quotation from the Upanishads. I've read a bunch of different um, translations of it that are pretty different. But one of them goes something like, two birds, inseparable companions, cling to the selfsame tree. Of these, one eats the sweet and bitter fruits of the tree and the other looks on in silence and eats not. So there's the bird that's eating the sweet and bitter fruits of the tree. And we could say, I mean, there's, I am not a scholar of the Upanishads, but let's just say that's the, the reincarnating bird, or that's the bird that's experiencing this lifetime, that's eating the sweet and bitter fruits and is having the experience of the sweet and bitter fruits. And then there's the other bird that's looking on in silence. And let's say that's our, our wider nature. That's us woken up. And I was once having a conversation with um, a scholar that goes to a lot of Esalen Center for Theory and Research. His name is Greg Shaw from Stonehill College. And 
we were talking about this and he said this lifetime's really about he called it the little bird the bird that's eating the sweet and bitter fruits like he's like that's what i'm interested we incarnate for a reason we're here to figure out this little lifetime and that there's some piece of our larger soul's journey or or something i I mean i might be misrepresenting greg but you know that, that this lifetime's really about coming down here and experiencing the sweet and bitter fruits it's about whatever it's about. It's about experiencing the sensual pleasures and experiencing the divine through a body and having the subject object relationship with the divine that we can have as beings communing with our higher nature that if there was nothing, if there was just the consciousness without the manifestation, um, I don't know, we wouldn't have an, we wouldn't be having this adventure. And I have to say, I, I, that's just me blathering. I really don't know. There's the, you know, the question of why is there something instead of nothing is uh, one of um, those fundamental questions that are fun to think about. But, you know, I like to feel like my life has meaning and that there, there is some big adventure here. And, and for me, just holding that idea that there is something some spark of the divine within me that's looking for fertile soil in which to grow in this life. To me, that's motivating in a way like that gets me out of bed and has me think, okay, what is my, what, what can I do to move this, this world forward? How can I serve? And so for me, that framework is helpful as far as what I've found in my own little imperfect life that helps me. So, um, that's why I hold that. And, um, I don't know if I was God, would I bother to incarnate or would I just sit there and be God? And if I, (laughs) my dad quoted somebody, I, I, this is not a perfect quote. He quoted somebody as saying, you know, if I was God, I would have done it better. Like, why is there evil? Why is, you know, there's suffering and locusts and, you know, there's a lot of thorny questions when it comes to the nature of manifestation.